0: strategy isn't static, but neither is it completely emergent or reactive. It, It should be something that is designed and intentional and responsive and resilient.
1: You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. At your organization, do you and your colleagues struggle to execute your most ambitious strategies? Do you find it hard to influence people across organizational boundaries? Do you ever feel yourself struggling to solve a problem because it's hard to find and connect with the right people? You know what? It probably isn't your fault your organization may be poorly designed to solve the problems that it actually wants to solve. Well, today, this podcast is all about design, what design actually is, why leaders shouldn't overlook it, and how it can be used to inform organizational structure and strategy. I'm speaking with Jennifer Riel, a writer and strategist who works as the global director of strategy at IDEO, the design consultancy. In that role, Jennifer uses design principles to help organizations architect resilient and effective strategies. Along with management professor and former podcast guest Roger Martin, Jennifer is the author of the 2017 book, Creating Great Choices, A Leader's Guide to Integrative Thinking, which was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. In our conversation, Jennifer and I talk about human-centered design, what it is, why it's important. We mull over why so many organizations are designed in a way that doesn't support their strategy. We hammer out a definition of what it means to be resilient, and we think about why successful leaders make better choices than the rest of us and and what we can learn from them. Jennifer and I talk about how well-educated, highly motivated professionals, like you and me, you dear listener and, and me, dear host, how we fall into the trap of fusing our identities with our performance at work and we talk about what can be done about that. Uh, As a teaser, it involves developing the growth mindset and becoming comfortable with not knowing the answer. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jennifer Rial. Why don't you introduce yourself?
0: I am Jennifer Rial. I am a writer and a strategist, and my day job is that I work as a global director of strategy at IDEO, Global design consultancy,
1: and how, what what does design mean in this context? I wonder if we could just start there.
0: Sure. So design, at, at its most basic form, is is sort of creation with intention, right? Um, so humans have always designed. The first time, uh, you know, one of our ancestors took a a stick and and tried to to turn it into something else. That that is an act of design. Um, The company I work for, IDEO, uh, is really one of the leading forces and founders of a concept uh, called human-centered design, which is uh, sort of the principle that, you know, when you set out to design something, you could start with the technology or you could start with the business need or you could start with the human, the user for whom you are designing the object. And IDEO is user-centered. It begins with the human beings for whom we will be designing. Uh, and really uh, follows a process that, that we call design thinking, the application of the tools and processes of a, a designer to whatever medium of design uh, they're working on. So that can be the design of an object. It can be the design of an organization. It can be the design of a strategy. And we do work of, of all of those types. And,
1: and you guys are, um, you guys are, Famous, it should be noted. Um, I, I mean, it's it's funny thing to say because you're famous, and yet I think a lot of listeners may not have heard of you. So, what are what are some what's a really concrete example? I'm sure you have the the sort of you know the well, yeah. What what is something that you guys have designed that people might 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 have heard of?
0: So, uh, David Kelly, who is our one of our founders, uh, became famous as a designer for working very very closely with Apple. Uh, where he helped design the first commercially produced mouse. So the concept of a mouse is, is very old. It's not long after the introduction of the computer, people started thinking about how you could control uh, through, through an object like uh, what we came to know as a mouse. And so David was one of the first designers who actually brought that into fruition. IDEO has designed things like uh, heart valves. We have designed things like laptop computers, um, and we have designed uh, new products and services for companies of all sizes and types. And I would say the, the thing that often people still will, will talk to us about when they first meet us is, is that about, oh, I'm going to get the date wrong, but let's call it 20 years ago, uh, Nightline did a segment on IDEO. And uh, people still show it in MBA classes and in design school. It's a team working with David Kelly to redesign what a shopping cart would look like. And so it's a very famous, the IDEO shopping cart video. It's often how people are introduced to us. And it's a a bit misleading because it really is grounded in this concept of design as design of a physical product. But of course design, is applied in the digital world as much or more as it is right. in the physical world now, um, and so you know we we are very much in the design of services, the design of systems, uh, as well as the design of physical objects.
1: Well, and it's it's interesting when you think about the the jump to the digital world because, you know, some elements of design are very visual. Some elements are are sort of the you know, the customer journey and and how you go from, oh, I want to buy this thing to, it's in my cart and and now you know, I'm entering my my information. I mean that is that is designed. And the, you know the digital world is, I think, especially interesting because like the mouse, we all take this stuff for granted nowadays. you know it is but, but the idea that it's not just the physical object of the mouse, it's that you're using the mouse, to drive your interface with the computer. I mean, that's a fascinating, I, I, I think it's both, it's it's intuitive, but only because it already exists and somebody designed it.
0: Uh, I once did an interview with um, the founder of Vanguard, the late Jack Bogle, and um, he was talking about the invention. He it, It's really his invention. The idea of an index fund came from his uh, thesis when he was in school. And uh, he said, it was just obvious. The idea of an index fund, the idea that that's how we should package uh, commodities in, in, and, and stocks and, and bonds into uh, something that you could purchase and that would be lower risk and higher return. Um, and I, I sort of laughed out loud uh, in the interview and I said, it might have been obvious to you, Jack, I don't think it was obvious to everybody else. And I believe that is why you are the founder of Vanguard and no one else is the founder right. of Vanguard. Um, because he really did create this idea of low-cost investing. I mean, other people may have had similar notions that that would be a valuable thing to do, but he is really the one who who found the mechanism, the tool uh, in the idea
1: of an index fund. That's a, That's a cool... Yeah, that's a cool story and a and a cool way to put it. And I, I think that um I mean, really, I think ties into thinking about digital design because it's a sort of product where the constraints are all informational, where there's not there's not many the, the constraint is not the interface, it's it's the kind of behavior of the user, it's the thought of the user rather than Anything physical, like this microphone or you know the the, the mouse. And it's, it's a really, I think there's, I see a lot of parallels there. And so you talk about designing products, designing services. I know that IDEO was involved years ago at this point uh, in the kind of reimagining of the guest experience for Acela, for Amtrak travelers. Um, so there's there's something that's kind of like, it's, it's, it's human system, and, and sometimes that system is a physical object. Sometimes uh, it's a, a, a product, a service. But you also talk about organization and strategy. How, does, how do you think about what, what does design mean in those contexts?
0: So any system can and should be designed, as, as you know, as well as anyone. Um, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> they can be designed well, and they can be designed to be deeply fragile, which is a, a key feature of your work. And so an organization is a system. It is a human system, right? It is the way that we have chosen to structure our days and our work. And some of that is incredibly hierarchical and other organizations are not, but those are intentional choices. They are design choices. And what we have found is that different organizations depending on legacy and need and uh, what they are trying to do in the world, their purpose should have different structures, different modes of working, different um, ways of, of thinking about incentives, and so you know, there there's a, a growing and important field of organizational design that says you know we can pull on those levers to create the right set of choices for the structure that will follow your strategy, the structure that is the right one for you to deliver on what it is that you need, and so we've seen organizations say you know. It is, it is no longer sufficient for us to be structured in a highly rigid, uh, incredibly hierarchical way. We need to organize around work, which is much more project oriented. It is much more fluid. We need the ability for people to move from a project to a different project without having to reinvent their entire job description and their entire career and their reporting track and all of those things. We have new ways of working that we need to design for. So very few people go in, sit at a desk and do, you know, heads down by themselves work. Most folks, um, certainly folks who who are doing creative work are working collaboratively. And so how do we design the systems and structures and processes that will enable you to do that kind of work? And all of that um, falls broadly under the bucket of organizational design. The kind of design that I get excited about, I of course get excited about all kinds of design. But the kind I get most excited about is.
1: Uh, <laughs> are you not? Are you not allowed at IDEO to like not be excited about a form of design? Was was that? Were you? <laughs>
0: I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty excitable group of humans. that is. They're enthusiastic people. Um, I get excited about strategy design, and and what that means is, it is the, the intentional design of the choices you're making to win in a particular way or to achieve your purpose. So what will you do? What will you not do to win in a particular way? And it turns out that there are ways of creating strategy that are um, kind of, uh, I'm I'm trying to think of a word that doesn't feel too harsh, but but that are highly analytical and reductive. They are based on what we do today. They are budget led. They are, you know, analyzing the world as it is by looking at all of our competitors and finding, you know, all kinds of spreadsheets and, and, and uh, PowerPoint presentations uh, around uh, our understanding of the world. And it turns out that there's another way that you can create strategy that, again, starts with your customers and what they want and need from you. That is, uh, yes, about understanding the world as it is, but also very explicitly imagining the world as it could be, and figuring out how you might design a set of choices about your playing field, design a competitive advantage that actually enables you to achieve your aspirations and and have the impact that you wish to have in the world. And and that's the work that we're doing in strategy design at Idea.
1: The kind of alternative type of design that you started with, which you didn't want to Apply a normative judgment to the word that popped into my mind was linear. It's very like there is a way of doing strategy design that is is very linear and is very kind of control oriented. So you know if A happens, then then we know that B will happen. And I I one of the things I'm as somebody who thinks a lot about complexity, obviously uh, one of the things I'm always fascinated about is. Well, like, when are the old methods actually appropriate? Like, when does hierarchy work? Because there are some contexts in which it does work. You know, when when do you like when do you just want people to focus on what's in front of them instead of collaborating? And it's like, well, if you have a process or or something where you can decouple the steps, then that's a perfectly fine way of doing it. But I think the challenge these days, as anyone who is alive today will know, is that. A lot of unexpected things happen, and by the time you get to your, like what what would have previously been thought of as implementation, the world has changed significantly, and so the ability to kind of not just design strategy from a, a human centered, from a customer centered viewpoint, but also to Approach that with a totally different set of tools that involves iteration and curiosity and learning being at the center of things rather than knowing being at the center of things. I think that's huge and I think that's that's what you're talking about, right That's the kind of design that you you do and 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 you're kind of a a a, a proponent of and you've advanced the field of with your work.
0: yeah I think you can. You can base this year's strategy on last year's strategy if you think this year is going to look exactly like last year. And there may be worlds in which that happens. Um, That was certainly not the case for the year we most recently (laughs) experienced. 2020 for for
1: people listening to this in in posterity.
0: Um, And I I mean, my guess is that they would be smiling and thinking that of whatever the most recent year that they lived through was, just 2020 was. little exceptional on that front. And I think also, um, I was smiling, Chris, as you were, as you were talking about, you know, can, can you break things down such that people can just, you know, come in and work on their piece of the puzzle heads down. Um, I think there was a time and a period where we believed that that was true and that people would find meaning in that work. I think we are learning increasingly that humans are social for a reason. Our work is better when we can connect it to other people's work and to a higher purpose and um you know i when, whenever i, I am speaking to groups of any kind I, I, I promote the same book because i'm so passionate about um the work that she did and that's uh Nepton's the good job strategy uh in which she's been able to demonstrate that you know even jobs that that at the at the obvious sort of front end of it feel clearly like low level repetitive routine jobs, a cashier in a convenience store or um, someone stocking shelves in a discount retail uh, environment that those jobs can be designed and they can be designed to be bad jobs, highly repetitive, low pay, uh, very irregular schedules. You can design jobs to be bad or you can make a choice as some retailers do, whether that's Quick Trip or Costco, uh, to make them good jobs, jobs that contain within them the scope for creativity, the scope to see your job as making the customer's day a little bit better, where you have a sense of ownership. And I actually tie it, Chris, to the work that, that you've done on, on fragile systems. Like I think if you were designing a system that removes human judgment and says, we're just gonna let the system run. Maybe that is gonna work for a while until the unpredictable happens. And then you need an actual human being to say, oh wait, the system was not designed to cope with this. We are going to need to do
1: something different. Right, right. And I think this is um, an interesting aspect of so many so many systems and so many jobs. And And when I think about one of the things that Andresh and I kind of struggled to do in the book in writing meltdown was find find examples of simple, modern simple systems. It gets easier as you go in the past and as you look back. but there are not many examples of modern simple systems. And what I hear you saying is there's also not many examples of kind of modern simple strategies um, where people can sort of set it up and, and, you know, fire it off into the world and then just work on turning the crank. It's a very, um, it's, it's, it's different. It's more dynamic. It's more emergent. You have to work on a lot of different things.
0: Yeah. Humans are not simple. Once you t- once a system touches humans, right. It ceases to be simple.
1: Right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. and, and, and I think the, you know, in this context, the, the contrast to linear which we we sort of described you know the kind of column a approach to it might be emergent it might be iterative it might be it's this idea that that you don't exactly know what your system is going to produce you don't know what your strategy is going to produce but you have a set of guesses and you have a way that you want to move forward and try things and kind of collect data on what's working and what's not that's that's how i think about it does that does that jive with you
0: so to the question of, of emergence, I think that there is a facile definition of emergence strategy and a sophisticated one. And I am, I am excited about the sophisticated one and not so excited about the facile one. So the facile one says, you can't know what's going to happen. So you just have to keep pivoting to whatever you see in front of you. That I think is a recipe for wildly wasted resources and burned out people, right? You're never actually able to uh, scale anything, to get the return on your investment because you're constantly reacting to what could be signal or what could be noise. And so I think that, that strategy does need to be a little more rigorous and, and in the sense that here are the choices we're making. Here is you know, the playing field that we have elected to play on, the customers we're trying to serve, the offers we're bringing to market, we've made choices about how vertically integrated we'll be, the geographies we'll serve, all of that, right? And we have a source of competitive advantage that we are either working to build or working to sustain. I don't believe that those should change willy-nilly, right? I think that exactly how you uh, bring them to life in market can change. I think that if market conditions change dramatically, then you can change uh, elements of your strategy over time. And so strategy isn't static, but neither is it completely emergent or reactive it, it should be something that is designed and intentional and responsive and resilient right you want to be able to say is this a strategy that you know could be made irrelevant by a single move from a competitor that's probably not a resilient strategy um, so therefore how do we think about the systems we'll have to build uh, the, the popular language of, of competitive moats or whatever else they might be, it would enable us to have a little more resilience in our advantage.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I have the, the kind of brain of an engineer, even though, (laughs) even though I'm not one, I still sometimes self-identify. And, you know, one of the things that, um, that I think is true about the way you describe things is, it, it's almost—it almost sort of struck me as kind of Bayesian in nature, and so you, you have this sort of like you have this current state of the world. So if you're a pharmaceutical company, you do pharmaceuticals. It would be weird for you to suddenly start delivering packages um, or 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 whatever. Um, but there are things that are kind of you know starting from the base of your capabilities and your people and the way you're structured and the way you think about things and the way you hire and your culture, there are like, that does not, those things alone do not create a solved system because it's a very dynamic world. You'll have competitors, you'll have regulatory changes. You'll have things you'll have to get better at as like supply chain and logistics packaging. Um, And so it just seems like that really it's, it's this balance of saying, you know, what, what are you, like where not just what are you good at, but and and what are the activities systems, what are the capabilities, but also where do you want to go and and kind of how do you both plant a flag in the ground and start going towards it without no with it, without having a map necessarily or without having a very detailed map of it?
0: Yeah, I think that um, it actually ties to what what was once often leveled as a criticism to design firms, which is that they would come up with these amazing offers, new services, new products, new experiences. And the response of the client would be, well, someone should do that. Like someone could win doing that. We can't do that. Like that has nothing to do with who we are or how we would win or any of our capabilities. And so the the intention of bringing ever more strategy into design and ever more design into strategy is to say, you know, sometimes you do wanna make a choice that is quite far from your current capabilities if the conditions are right. And if you believe that there is a a way to get from here to there, if it is the right set of choices for your organization. Ford Motor Company needs to move from a company that makes cars to a company that enables mobility. That is gonna be a journey that will take years and years and, and a lot of effort but it is the right thing to do because there will no longer be companies that just make cars in the future. We're gonna to have to figure out a, a new uh, way of not being the buggy whip manufacturers of the future. I think it's, um, it's an important element is to be able to say, you know why us? Why, what is the reason to believe that we could get there? What is the reason to believe that this is a winning strategy for us? And, and a feature of that is often looking at the competitive set or the potential competitive set and saying, why would we win versus someone else? Why would this be a choice that makes sense for us versus others? And it's an interesting conversation in many spaces today, because there are these extraordinarily large, well-capitalized companies that could do anything. Right. So the number of times I've had a conversation with an organization in whatever industry and, you know, it comes up, well, if Google decided to do this, then they could take our entire market. And that is true in many, many markets. If Google decided to do something and do it well, they could likely take over many markets. And so the other part of the conversation is what is the reason to believe that they would do that? They don't do everything. They make choices now. And so what is the reason to believe that this is an area that's of interest to them if we're in healthcare or mobility or manufacturing or whatever else it might be?
1: Yeah. Um, so you've used the word choice, I think, more than my average podcast guest, which is not surprising, <laughs> uh, because you wrote um, you wrote a book called Creating Great Choices uh, with Roger Martin, who was also on the podcast a couple of um, episodes ago. Uh, and we didn't talk much about creating great choices, although, of course, it, it sort of permeates Roger's thinking about everything, and, and it kind of permeates, you know, we talked about strategy, it sort of permeates our discussion. but. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the book. Talk to me a little bit about your journey to writing it. Cause that, I think that's a, a it's, it's an interesting kind of, I mean, in a sense, you designed the book, you used a design process to figure out what the book was about and then you wrote it. So can you talk, talk through that a little bit?
0: Sure. I wish I could say that I knew that's what I was doing when, when I started, but that is not the case. So, um, I, I have, uh background as a creative, I was a copywriter and an editor and, and, um, you sort having a happy, happy little career in that space. Uh, and then my, my job was outsourced to an organization that made me deeply miserable. So I thought, well, I'll go get an MBA because it seems like the people making the decisions have these MBAs and I don't know anything about business at all. I, I just know how to write great copy. Um, so decided to do an MBA and, and met our then Dean of the Rotman School of Management at the time was Roger Martin. Roger was a management consultant by training. And he um, was really interested in the idea of what we at the Rotman School might teach to our MBAs and executives and, and members of our community that would be different and valuable, right? Strategy is about different and valuable. So. He reflected on his career as a management consultant and on the most effective choices, the most effective leaders and the intersection of those things. And he had a hypothesis that really truly wildly successful leaders over a long period of time think differently about how they make their choices. And so he spent the first few years of his deanship, exploring that interviewing leaders from across industries, trying to figure out what that pattern might be. And when I met him in 2004, he was just starting to think about how to communicate and share what that theory was. And the theory was essentially this, that most of us, when we are confronted with a really difficult choice, a trade-off we wish we didn't have to make, say to ourselves, life is hard, I'm gonna choose the least worst option. I'm gonna choose the option I can live with, or I'm gonna to try to find some kind of compromise. It's not great, but like people can live with it. We can satisfy our answer. And what he found by interviewing folks like H.V. Lafley from Procter & Gamble and Izzy Sharp from the Four Seasons and Michael Dell from Dell Computers, is that in many cases for the decisions that really mattered to them, right? If there was a great choice, they chose it. But in those cases where it was a difficult decision, the choices in front of them weren't good enough or in choosing you were giving too much up, that they saw their job not as choosing but of creating, of finding a third and better way, an answer that wasn't a compromise in which you kind of settle, you take a bit of the good and a bit of the bad, but that was an integrative solution. that moved out the line of value, that you created new value, a better answer than, than we began with. They saw that as their job. They believed that that, that was their job. And so I took a, a course from Roger in my first year of my MBA in which he laid out this theory. And then you know, he wrote a book uh, around the same time called The Opposable Mind, which is a great articulation of that theory and, and tells great stories about what integrative thinking is and what great leaders who, who do it did in their careers. And as I was graduating, he was getting ready to scale his teaching. We really wanted to figure out what it would look like to teach this more broadly. And he asked me to stay and work with him for a year to help figure that out. He knew I was a storyteller and maybe I could help him do that. Um, My friends had to convince me that that was a good way to spend a year of my time. I was very ready to take a different job. Um, And I actually ended up staying for, for 13 years, working very closely with Roger. And my primary interest was to say, okay, um, certainly there are people who think this way naturally. I am not one of them. (laughs) And moreover, I rarely in my business life, my work life have made decisions by myself. I tend to be in teams and we need to make choices together. So what would be a process for a group of people to attempt to find a better answer when they face one of these untenable trade-offs. What could it look like to try to create a process that people could follow, a set of steps that they could apply to their most difficult challenges? And so that was really a, a process of trial and error. We would you know, get groups of students or executives or whoever we were working with to try different ways of tackling their opposing models or their tensions. and over time honed and refined what, what came to be a four-step process for working through the, the tension or the challenge. And uh, Creating Great Choices is the book that Roger and I wrote about that process. What, what are the steps that you as a leader can follow with your team or if it happens to be on your own, what are the steps that you can go to when you face that very difficult choice that either or where you wish there was a better answer?
1: And what are, what are the four steps?
0: Four steps. Um, the first step is uh, to actually turn whatever problem you were facing into a, a clear either or choice that, that feels clear and opposing. So uh, an example I often use is, you know, I, was, I was teaching a group at a regional municipality. So like a county. Uh, if we were in the States. Um, And there was a woman who was responsible for the delivery of autism support services. So for children in the region who have autism, the region would provide a certain set of services. And there had been over the previous five years, a pretty significant increase in the rate of diagnosis. So there were more children who could be served, but there had not yet been an increase in funding because that doesn't happen as quickly. And so her problem was I have way more kids in the same amount of money. And you could spend a lot of time admiring that problem, right? You spend a lot of time thinking about whose fault it is and really the answer is more money. And so we spent some time you know, in this group saying, okay, well, if we accept the constraints of this many kids and this amount of money, what is the difficult choice you really feel you're facing? What what is hard about the fact that you have more kids and and less money? And she said, well, I think what it is is that there are some people in my team who believe that um, we should take an equality approach. Every child in our region who has autism should get some support from the region. So we got to take the peanut butter and spread it out as thin as we possibly can. And there are other people on my team who who would argue, hey, there are children who have much greater need and no other recourse. So whether because of the social determinants of health or their family's condition or whatever it might be, they do not have the resources to deal with the condition in any way that is effective. And so what we should do is tightly focus on those children who have the greatest need. I'm not ready to make either of those choices. I don't, I don't love the idea of turning away all of these children completely. And I don't love the idea of saying that every children child needs to be treated equally. And so we turned what was a problem into attention. Um, and once you do that, within this first phase, it is about falling in love with each option, really forcing yourself to say, how might this answer be great? For me, for my stakeholders, what is there to love about this particular answer? Um, that's the first step. So defining the problem and attempting to fall in love with the existing answers.
1: I, I'm going to jump in because yeah. I've never had this thought before, but a lot of my, we're going to, we're getting into the weeds for, for we're going down a level for maybe the the typical level that, that, um, we discussed this on, but um, I've been doing a lot of organizational work and one-on-one coaching work that is centered around a um, gestalt approach to development. And gestalt is all about sort of seeing and appreciating what is. And And I think I hear very strong parallels in that. So an example um, just in a one-on-one coaching, uh, if I'm working with a leader who um I have a, a, a leader I'm working with who um says yes to everything. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know, he he's very service-oriented. He says yes when people on his team need help. He says yes when his firm's clients need help. Um he says yes a lot. He makes himself very available. And and so one of the things we talk about is gosh how how good that is how how helpful that is how useful it is to say yes you would not want to be a person who couldn't say yes and yet there's a cost if that's all you can do there's there's a cost and so there's just a way i think of you know pema chodron the 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 buddhist writer and philosopher she has a quote that i'll paraphrase which is like are fundamentally our neuroses are also our superpowers. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a, a slightly different form of what I hear you saying. It's like there's something about each of these ideas that, like, that, that it, it's not like we have to appreciate it by having a positive attitude. It's like there is something authentically good about each of these.
0: Absolutely. Uh, the way one of my dear friends, uh, Dr. Hillary Austin, talks about it is is the difference between consideration and evaluation. We are trained from a very early age to evaluate. Yes, no, good, bad, right, wrong. And the desire in the first stage of integrative thinking is to get you to consider a little bit longer than you normally would, to dig a little more deeply into what might be valuable about this thing that you might naturally be inclined to dismiss and say, nothing good in that, um, we've tried it before. There's no value. Um, and what we're looking for is raw material, right? We're looking for insights that help us look at the problem differently. And you can't look at the problem differently if you don't have tools to help you do that, right? We, we can't force you to see something you don't know how to see. And so, so the design of the process was to help people see problems with new eyes or with a different perspective. And what we found was um, you know, the natural instinct would be to say, if you've got two opposing models, you should, you know, figure out the pros and cons of each. And in a very practical way, what we found was as soon as people started talking about the cons or the negatives of the models, they were done. They had no ability to, to go further and to create something new because they would give up. They would say, this is, this is in the bad column because it has so many drawbacks. And so I'm not going to think about it anymore because it belongs in the bad column column. So yeah, that's, that's a really critical first step. And I think it does tie to how you've been thinking about the, the leadership development or personal development domain. Yeah. Um, so once you do that first step, um, then it starts to become more about questioning. So step two is about examining those models. This is where you start to step back and say, what, what assumptions might we have made about these two models now that we're seeing them with fresh eyes? What are the really important cause and effect relationships that we might see within these models? So there's an outcome on this side that doesn't seem to exist in the other model. How do we think that works? Why do we think that's the case? Or there might be one stakeholder who does really well if we choose option A and really poorly if we choose option B. How do we make sense of that? What does that mean for us? What truly are the sources of tension? What makes it hard? to do both of these things. And ultimately this conversation, this step two is in service of getting you to a place where you're able to say, what is it that we as a team truly value and would want to bring forward into our new and better answer. So when you are only looking at the headline, should I be centralized or decentralized? There's not a lot of space between those. You're gonna have to choose to be centralized or decentralized. But if you dig in and you say, it's not the headlines that I care about, I don't care ultimately, I don't have an emotional value investment in in being centralized. What I care about is that being centralized enables us to move quickly. And when we are decentralized, we are close to the end user. So if I were to design a new system, I might design it less about the choice between being centralized and decentralized, and I might instead say, what is the system that enables me to move quickly at scale, but still stay very close to the user? So that becomes your new design challenge, is how do I bring the pieces I most love and value from the models into a better answer? And that's step three, right? What might a better answer look like? how might we think about bringing these two models together or pieces of these two models together in a way that creates more value than simply choosing. So the last step is step four. For a long time, there were only three steps. And then both Roger and I uh, got very engaged in and excited about the world of design and design thinking. And so we stole step four from the world of design thinking. Uh, blatantly, uh, but with a little attribution. So in design, uh, one of the core principles of design is that you should take an idea while it is still rough, while it's still just an idea, and make it tangible and test it. And then it can fail. And the cost of that failure is very, very low. And then you can design it again and again and again through iterative testing. And you can see the roots of this philosophy in all kinds of tools that we see in organizations today agile uh lean the, these tools have the same set of principles which is let's test things early while it's inexpensive to do so so we added a step four which is to say as you've generated these potential better answers um how might you go test them what what could you do while the idea is still an idea rather than going to your boss and saying I have a brand new transformative way to lead the organization. Trust me, it will be awesome. Rather than doing that, how might you um, test it in small, uh, bite-sized kinds of ways that would help you build confidence in which possibility you want to move forward with?
1: And I think in some ways, the process you just described very much connects to the process that we were talking about before thinking about strategy, thinking about designing strategy, because it's both this kind of, you sort of have the model on the whiteboard. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. But then you have the, um, gosh, what's the word here? You have the kind of, it's not humility exactly because you can have a lot of courage around your convictions and you can know that you're capable, but you almost have the grace to give yourself the tolerance to say, well, this is what we think, but I, we don't really know. And so here's what we're gonna try.
0: Yeah, I think you do wanna have this integration <laughs> of, of humility and confidence, right? Which is to say, I don't have all the answers, but I do have an answer I like. And so I'm going to go try this and learn. Um, and if it turns out that it's not a great answer, then that's all right, because there are other answers. There's a, a element of growth mindset in it, which is to say, I can test and learn. I can learn from failure. Um, the failure of my, my ideas is not the failure of me. It's not an identity challenge every time an idea doesn't work. Right. And that's an incredibly important thing. I think, um, There's been a lot of discussion about the failures of education over the last 20 years to build resilience and grit in children Mm -hmm. uh, because they do not fail um, even in small ways in many school systems. And so growth mindset, which is the brilliant work of Carol Dweck is saying we've gotta help kids figure out that that failure is the path to learning so they can build their resilience and, and their grit.
1: And to bring it to uh, the kind of what's got my uh, my attention these days is you know when when Andras and I wrote Meltdown, um, I, you know it's it's a book that we're both really proud of, and I'll, I'll I'll I feel free to speak for him in this way. It's a book that we're both really proud of, and we really wanted it to be very solutions oriented. And so most of the book, as you know, is about, so it's a little bit about, here's the properties of systems. And then a lot of it's about, here's how you can think about it. Here's how you can operate in those systems. Here are the kind of the very human, the very kind of social things that you can do to manage these systems better, to perform better in these complex and uncertain environments. And and I think it, it, it's kind of a, I, I wanna use the word gently when I think about my my past self, and I won't talk about Andres here, but for me, I think there was a bit of naivete built into the solutions. And and what I mean is, you know, a solution about managing a complex, uncertain system is what we're talking about. It's experimentation, it's testing, it's treating the whole system kind of as, as a sort of ongoing experiment with some with some guardrails. And so as you know, one of the things you can do in those systems is learn from mistakes, learn from errors, learn from what near misses in particular. And and I think that, you know, as I've done more and more of the consulting and, and kind of work with leaders in the corporate world, I've realized how far away so many cultures start or so many cultures are now from that principle. A lot of cultures are very planning oriented. A lot of cultures are very success oriented and, and they like to talk about the things that go well. And you know, there are organizations where as soon as you admit a mistake, you've kind of entered into um, blame and failure and, and this kind of identity threat that we, that we talked about. And so I wonder if you can, you know, the, the clients that, you know, I, I, I'm sure you get opportunities to, to, for lack of a better word, to sell work or to like, to figure out if you're the right fit for, to help solve a particular client's problem. And I'm just curious, like, as you, as you do that, as you talk with people about potential projects, what are the kind of cultural the cultural elements that you're engaging with or looking for or thinking about, because as you said, uh, the, back when you were mentioning the critique of design, like, Oh, that might work. It just won't work here. So like, how do you, how do you think about that kind of cultural overlay that comes into things?
0: I mean, I think it, it's a complex question with a complex answer, which is to say, if you're doing something that is bite-sized, that is a simple new product or new service, the culture you need to concern yourself with is the particular leader of their particular team, right? So if you have uh, a leader who, who embraces the idea of change, who is willing to learn new tools, you, know, the, you, can, you can do remarkable things at, at a small scale, regardless of the overall culture of the entire organization. I think you know, the work that IDEO has, has increasingly leaned into over the last ten years, is is more around helping organizations transform so that they can actually be more future fit, more creatively confident, all of these things. And again, I d- I don't know that there is a single answer because every every snowflake is different, every company is different, every context is different. It is about um, yeah, you know, I don't think there's any culture that can't change. It's about the recognition that changing will be worth it, that that there will be. Some at the end of this, that it is worth doing. I think one typical thing that helps is having a purpose beyond making money, mm, a recognition yes. that we are in this for, for more reasons than, than the quarterly results. Leaders who believe that it is their job to, to leave the organization better than they found it um, often is, is, a, is a really helpful piece of it. Um, and I think all human beings deep down want meaning in their work. All human beings I want agree. to grow. They want to learn But that we are trained in organizations that, that failure is an identity threat, that I, I am the sort of person who succeeds. And, and that is the definition of a fixed mindset. And so we are seeing lots of organizations now, and, and you may be seeing this as well, Chris, who are really intentionally teaching growth mindset, which started as a, as a tool in the world of education to adults because we don't learn it enough in the world of education. So the idea that um, intelligence can grow over time, creativity can grow over time, but the path to that is trial and error.
1: The path to that is trial and error. And the idea that you quote unquote should know the answer is um, I think increasingly offensive in, in many ways. Um, and I realize that's a strong word. But yeah, I, I think that's interesting. And moreover, you know, as people who, people who advance in leadership into leadership positions in companies, or people that go through MBAs, or people that have, you know, undergrad degrees from prestigious institutions, we've spent a lot of our lives being successful and being rewarded for being successful. And and yet there gets to be a kind of threshold where as we start to work on something that is, I think, more more meaningful and less transactional and more, more, dare I say, complex, we have to make that shift from realizing that our value is not in knowing the answer because no one knows the answer, but our value is in growth and learning and, and development. And I think that is a shift that that leaders need a lot of support to make. And I I don't think that that should be understated because there is so much training, as you were saying, kind of connecting us with the, the, the right answer and the identity threat when we don't have it.
0: Yeah. I I think that's profoundly true. It might even be a little bit worse. I think in school, you're not only rewarded for being right. You're rewarded for being right first. Mm, Yeah. the First kid with their hand up the quickest to the answer and for defending that answer. And I think that leaders, um, particularly as you get more senior, there are very few right answers in complex social systems, right? Yeah. They're not non-obvious and, and uh, it requires a, a great deal of confidence to be able to say, I don't know, let's figure it out. Yeah. If more leaders said that more of the time, I think that that the world of business would be really different.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. What um what a good place to to end in our not knowing together, um, Jennifer. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, where where can people find you if they want to know more about you or or your book or?
0: So they can find me on Twitter. You can just search for my name, Jennifer Real, or um, you can find the book anywhere books are sold. I think that's how we're supposed to say. It. Yeah, that's what um, we're supposed to say.
1: Find anywhere uh, high quality books are sold.
0: Indeed. But it's, uh, it's published by Harvard Business Review Press. And so that, that's a great place to look for it as well. Um, yeah, those would probably be the best places to find me.
1: And I will uh, link to both of those things. We will link to both of those things in the show notes. So it's easy for people to to connect with you and uh, easy for people to uh, buy a copy of Creating Great Choices, which is a book that that I think is fantastic in its both its kind of paciness and its practicality. It's really, really good, and it helps me think through lots of uh, of the big challenges that that I face. And, and frankly, sometimes some of my clients face too. so. Um, thank you for putting it out in the world.
0: Well, thank you for saying nice things about it, and for this conversation, it's been really fun. I was happy to be here.
1: Likewise, thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com/giveaway. So, what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember: if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com/make-the-leap. That's all one word: make the leap. The breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash thebreakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next Breakdown.